It's the Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry back with you. Jerry, we've got some milestones. We do have some milestones. Are you ready for this? Yes. This is episode number 50. Wow. The 50th episode of Something for Nothing. Can you believe it? Yes. <laughs> I don't. I really didn't think we'd get this far. I really didn't. Oh, I didn't. No, I didn't think that we would do more than 10, actually. I thought we'd bail by then. Yeah, I'm happy to say we've we've done 50, and I think we might do 50 more. That's true. And, you know, recently we surpassed 50,000 downloads. Yes, that was the other milestone. Oh, really? I, I stole it from you? No, it's okay. That's fantastic, Sorry. though. Stole your thunder. No, it's fine. And we thank each and every one of our listeners for each of those downloads. That's true. Except for the people who never came back after listening to the first episode. Well, they're not listening now, so we don't <laughs> have to, right. we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> the first episode had, had a lot of uh, listens, but then it sharply drops off. The, but then it's maintained for the rest. I think that's the case with any podcast, really. I mean, I've listened to tons of podcasts where I listen to the first episode and I'm like, eh, not for me. Then I don't listen again. Yeah. We only want the people that say, yes, this is for me. True. Right? Sure. And there are a lot of those people and we thank all of them. There are. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of huge Rush fans out there. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are the Rushcast. And our email is therushcast at gmail.com. As always, we thank Lex for doing the bass intro for us on today's podcast. And speaking of emails, you've got one for us, do you not? I do. It's a short one. Good. Let's hear it. It is from William. Hi, William. (laughs) He says, I just wanted to thank you guys for your podcast. I am a drummer, bassist, educator in Arizona. I have been a Rush fan since the Signals tour. Rush to me is my safe space where I go when my world is crazy and they are always there for me. You can imagine how much I have been going to them in the last few months. I especially like your take on the lyrics. I have always been a music first, lyrics later kind of guy. Your explanation of anagram blew my mind. I'm wondering how I never knew the anagram thing until now, 31 years after Presta was released, and I never knew that. Wow. As a high school band director, my kids know I love Rush due to the 1970s Rush mirror in my office, but I have never pushed it on them until Neil passed away. I spent an entire percussion class introducing them to his work, La Villa Strangiato, Xanadu, YYZ. Not sure if it got through to them as we went into virtual quarantine shortly after, but who knows? It was a bit therapeutic for me. Wow, that's great. Thanks so much for that email. Yeah, teacher. A drum teacher. Yeah, band instructor listening to us speaking of instructors we have got a great great guest today on the rush fancast jar we do we do we really do drummer educator author and publisher he was in the rush tribute band power windows for 11 years and he collaborated with neil peart on the book and dvd taking center stage a lifetime of live performance joe bergamini welcome to the rush fancast Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Why don't you start, Joe, by telling us your Rush origin story? Yeah, say no more. I got you. Um, <laughs> so when I was 13 years old, I noticed that the cool kids, quote unquote, in school started to come in to school with these um, sort of interesting things scrawled on their denim-covered notebooks, like The Doors, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, Dio, Rush. Uh, And so I said to my mom, I should have a radio. This seems pretty intriguing. You know, we grew up in a 
Uh, I mean, I'm 50, so I grew up, you know, I came of age like post the early Rush period in Zeppelin, but tons of great bands and it was part of the culture. And so I convinced my mom to get me a radio and I used to put in a cassette tape and press record so I could capture the things I like to hear on the radio. And uh, one day I captured, well, three things that really intrigued me. Um, one was the song Separate Ways with Journey with Steve, the great Steve Smith on drums. Dance the Night Away by Van Halen, Alex Van Halen, two guys who later became heroes of mine. And most importantly, Subdivisions by Rush, which had just come out. So that was my, it was right when Subdivisions was on the radio a lot. It was just before the release of 83, so just before the release of Grace Under Pressure. And um, something in me just ticked like thousands of other guys and girls of my generation and said, this is incredible. I want to play the drums. To me, the drums is what spoke to me. And it was because of the song Subdivisions. I didn't really get the mess, lyrical message of the song. I don't think that was the hip part of it to me. It was just that like something about the drums struck me. And I asked my parents for drum lessons. And I played along to Rush every single day in my basement for uh, my entire high school career for probably three hours. Um, and I definitely mixed it up with other music, which helped me in my drumming career. You know, a lot of people sort of like got myopic just about Neil. Um, that's another discussion, but uh, I was really intrigued by him. And um, I found a guitar player friend of mine that was also equally as enamored with Alex Lifeson. And we jammed Rush every day. His name was Paul Badalamente. He sadly uh, died of cancer a few years back. But he, um, we played along to Rush every day. And in my high school, Rush wasn't that popular. They were almost con considered like a geek band. And I know in other high schools, they were like really popular. This made me and Paul even more like just they're our band and just rabidly love them. And I can clearly remember my dad taking me to Madison Square Garden, Grace Under Pressure tour. We had the very last top row of the garden because I had never been to a concert before. And I walked in behind the stage and I could see back then, you know, they, um, they used to wrap Neil's kit with like a little covering so you couldn't see the reveal until the show, which I always loved. And I could see some of the symbols and the concert toms. And, and I was just like, I don't believe that's his actual kit. And then when he came out, I, I couldn't believe I was in the same building with him. It was like, it was me and him. And uh, I just became a huge fan of not necessarily really, I think really a very pure love of the music wore out exit stage left freeze framing the, the, the video stills when I could watch a fill that he played and uh, just completely, like I said, <clears throat> I had to, privileged to write uh, an, uh, a eulogy to him on the Hudson Music site. I played along with this stuff to literally, I knew it as well as my own name. So that's, that's how I got into it. So Rush inspired you to become a drummer, really? Yes. Now let's fast forward before we get into the book. How did you become the drummer of the tribute band Power Windows? Great. So um, I continued along with my playing, just loved playing along with Rush, old state, a big fan. And then I graduated school. I went to school. I have a degree in architecture. And um, the reason I have that degree is because I didn't know any professional musicians. I didn't know any way to become a professional drummer. So I figured I would go to NJIT in Newark, New Jersey, close to where I live. Mm -hmm. And that would allow me to come home and play my drums every night and pursue my real secret plan, unbeknownst to my dad, of becoming a drummer. And so I pursued that. And I got to meet the great drum teacher, Dom Famularo, who lives on Long Island. I studied with him. And then I launched a career um, in drumming. Along the way, I started to learn about many other great drummers, and I sort of went into like a little bit of a anti-Neil phase. I, I had to, I had to leave home. I had to cast out as the prodigal son, and <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, 
I was kind of in an anti-Neil phase. I remember the Roll the Bones tour came through at that time, and I didn't go. I was like, I don't need to see Neil. He's, I've seen everything he's done. I was getting into David Garibaldi and Billy Cobham and Simon Phillips, and I can remember coming home from the gig and seeing they were playing at the Meadowlands, and I, and I didn't go in. I didn't have a ticket, and uh, of course, regret that heavily now. Um, it was the only tour I missed since seeing live multiple times since that first time I, I saw them on Race Under Pressure. And um, so then I was going about my business, building a career, playing in cover bands. And I joined a cover band with the guitar player, Zach Rizvi. And Zach and I formed a prog rock band called Forefront, ultimately. And in case you guys don't know who he is, he's currently the guitar lead guitar player in Kansas. Oh, okay. He plays the Kerry Livgren part in Kansas. And he's also the main songwriter on their new album, Absence of Presence, and probably one of the greatest musicians I've ever met or played with. And of course, we met at this just out of college age, and we discovered we had a mutual love of Rush. And he's like, hey, man, I'm in a Rush tribute band. We play at the Rock and Roll Cafe on Bleecker Street in New York every Wednesday. Why don't you come down and check it out? And I went down and I saw the band. They had two previous drummers before me, one of whom was Jim Toscano, who's now a really good friend of mine. And uh, I run a thing called the Sabian Education Network, and Jim's a huge contribut- contributor to it, so we're very close friends now. But he had gone, and they had another drummer that they were a little unhappy with. And um, I went to see the band, and everything came flooding back. Like, my anti-Neil period came to an instant end, and I was like, this is the effing coolest. <laughs> they were so good. And, of course, Zach was like, I just knew how great he was. And the, the other guys and the, the guys were playing it so great. And the other drummer was great. He just, I don't think he was enough of a real detailed um, lover of the music. He loved the music, but the rest of us were insane. I was like, you know, knew, I still knew it all. So Zach said, I said, you know, you guys are amazing. You know, the kind of musician things people say, like, if you ever need a drummer, keep me in mind. I mean, it's great. A week later, Zach called me and said, we let our drummer go. This was on a Sunday. Why don't you come down to the, the club and play with us Wednesday? And I said, like, do the gig? And he said, yeah. And I, so I went down and... I played my first gig with them on no rehearsal in 1993 on Bleecker Street on the Rock and Roll Cafe. And uh, I went over everything at home and I, I don't, I recorded the gig. I still have it on a cassette. You know, I knew the live endings. Everything was just tucked away in there and I, it just doesn't go away. And we played the gig and um, I would join the band for 11 years. We didn't rehearse for about a year and a half after I joined. When Counterparts came out, we had a rehearsal to learn the album. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh such a great memory, man. We just played for 10 years. We played all over the East Coast, went to Puerto Rico a couple of times. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was great. We were a four-man band, so we didn't have to play with uh, any external tracks like Rush would do live. And um, it allowed me to play. I- I'm not as much of an electronics aficionado, or at least wasn't then, as Neil was. So I wasn't triggering things. So our keyboard player, Dan, was the founder. And he handled a lot of the uh, things that the guys would trigger, as well as playing the live parts. So like... You know, like Rush would at the end of Spirit of Radio, that piano thing, ding, 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 mm-hmm. ding. That's that's a that's a sequence, and the they never played to a click live. So you'd go to certain shows, and if they were amped, like it would be like that. You know, they'd have to pull it back when the piano came in, right? Because it was like a pre-recorded. Neil talked about that a lot. So that allowed us to just play without having to deal with any of the external time samples, like which was pretty actually ballsy that Rush did that because. To, to trigger off a sample in time when you haven't been playing in a click to a click is risky. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. I do that. You guys will find that out quick. Everything's on topic here. Oh, sweet. But anyway, that, that's how I got into the band and um, did it for 11 years. And actually a lot of really other cool big Rush fans came by. Mike Portnoy came and sat in and that's where we developed our friendship and he would sit in. 
Jason Bonham sat in one time and then did the light board for my drum solo. Oh, wow. Sell out, mate. I was like, you're Jason <laughs> Bonham. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, do you just take a back seat and just let them go? Well, when Bonham would sit in, you know, the guys knew tons of tunes. He didn't play Rush. Jason played some Zeppelin. But but Mike Portnoy knows every Rush tune. So Mike would come. He saw us multiple times, and he would sit in. He would play whatever tune he wanted. And, we, and you know, by the way, we would just play whatever. Like, Zach would be like, he would make the set list, and he'd be like, let's do Cygnus. And I, I'd be like, we haven't done Cygnus in, like, eight months. I don't know if I remember it. He'll be like, I'll come back to you. And then he would do it. <laughs> he's, calling, he's calling out songs like Springsteen, right? Yeah, it was like a it was like a wedding gig, but with rush tunes. No, he would, <laughs> we would make a set list, but just the fact that that all of us knew eighty rush tunes, just like you know, like we would just play Jacob's Ladder. I, I was actually just jamming through it before, you know, and like it was sometimes it could be a little rough and ready, but like it it was pretty like live without a net, which which is cool. I, I'm I'm happy that I had that experience with it. Let's uh, get to the book. How did you find yourself in the position to number one? work on an instructional rush book and then work with Neil on it. I um, was always interested in transcribing music and publishing. And um, let me try to uh, keep this as concise as I can so we can talk about Neil. I pursued that part of my career. I got published as an author and a transcriber. And then eventually I got asked to be on the editorial side with books. And in that capacity, I went through a few different things and then I got with Hudson music. Okay. And in that capacity, you work with the artist to consolidate their thesis, sometimes help complete their plan for the book, and then organize their material, go back and forth with the editing, and just act as almost like a, uh, the producer or, or engineer would on a recording session. And so in that capacity, I got to work with tons and tons of famous drummers. And through my upbringing of going, to, um, in my early career of going to clinics, I mentioned to you, I got to you know, meet Mike Portnoy and work with a lot of other artists. So I, I got to be tempered into being very lucky to meet a lot of my heroes and also to learn how to work with some of these bigger artists. When you're working with someone and you're meeting them on, on a level basis, it's really a special, a special thing because it's not like a fan meeting the artist. It's like you're almost meeting them on equal ground. So I went through a lot of this and I had known that um, Neil did, I'll show just for your guys' edification, Work in Progress, which is a DVD he did. Mm-hmm. Test record. And then Anatomy of a Drum Solo, which was two previous videos he did. And the guys who owned the company that I was working for, Hudson Music, Rob Wallace, who's now the only owner, and Paul Siegel, who was an owner at the time, they had done everyone's drum videos, all the legends. And so now I'm working for them. I never brought up Neil's name because I knew I, I was a big enough Rush fan to know how private he is. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was, I always thought to myself, if, if Neil ever wants to do a project, I'm sure they'll let me know, but there's no point in me asking because I mean, I was afraid if I even brought it up, that would be the, they, they'd be like, Oh my God, this guy's a fan. Like, forget it. Cause Neil would be freaked. So I never brought it up about five or six years into my tenure. They called me one day and said, Neil might want to work on a new project. We know you're really familiar with his work. Why don't you write a proposal for him? And, um, I couldn't even believe it. And I being intimately familiar with his past educational projects, I knew that one of the things that the fans and I would really want was to try to get him to talk about the construction of some of his classic drum parts, which if you know from his past educational works and his interviews, he tended to play down his older work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was hoping to succeed where others had failed and get them mm-hmm. to talk about the classic drum parts of Spirit Radio and Subdivisions and Tom Sawyer. Not that 
the making of Tesseract wasn't interesting, but I just, I just wanted that from him. And I wrote these crazy proposals for him, which were pretty detailed with questions kind of connecting his work. Like I knew it well enough and I had been teaching drums long enough to connect things he played through his style. And also I read enough of his interviews to have guessed what might interest him or what I hope would interest him. Mm-hmm. Like, some of the rhythms he might have brought back from Africa in his travels there and how he incorporated them into songs and how they might pop up in same or different ways. Like in Heresy, he used a African beater. In Taishan, he used uh, something he... Well, he was inspired by China. The rhythm didn't directly come from China. And so I put all these things together, obscure tracks, well-known tracks into their proposal, and they showed it to him. And, and of course, in Neil's case... They, they would report back to me his feelings. I, I didn't get to see his email address. I didn't get to see anything directly written from him. Unlike many other artists, like he's on a different level. You know, if I was with Keith Carlock from Steely Dan, who's a famous drummer, we would be emailing right away. So um, Neil, it piqued his interest enough. He, he's, I think he saw that there was a lot of knowledge about his work and it was, I was asking some intelligent questions enough that he wanted to do, explore it to the next level and that he might be open to talking about the idea. Cause he really didn't have like a thesis worked out for this one. Mm-hmm. And so then he expressed to us that he wasn't really that interested in talking about the old stuff, but he wanted to see if there was a way we could work it out. And so Rob said, well, maybe you should meet Joe so that you can see how comfortable you'd be. And so then they came back and told me that. And of course I was flipping out. I'm sure. Yeah. I like I, and I, by that point I had, I had, I didn't think I even wanted to meet him because I thought he would just be like, here comes fanboy, you know, this is weird. Right. And, and I didn't want it to be uncomfortable. So, but anyway, they, um, it's like actually pretty moving to talk about, but he said, why don't you bring him down to a show and I'll meet him. So I met him on the snakes and arrows tour at the PNC bank arts center. Rob and I went down and you had, you have to follow some security protocols like, getting into the Oval Office to get to him uh, with his his security guy, Michael, who did a wonderful job of protecting him. And so we came back and the plan was we met him on his bus. So, and Rob and Neil were old friends. So we went down to PNC Bank Arts Center, my heart in my throat, and we met him. And I went uh, onto his bus. Rob went in, gave him a big hug, and I went in. And and there he was, you know, on the bus. And I didn't say, for for once in my life, I, I heard my old man's voice in my head saying, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Right, right. <laughs> for once in my life, I kept my mouth shut and um, they caught up and Neil was talking about riding his bike through Princeton and um, he had seen a Michael Graves building that he really liked and uh, he couldn't remember the name of the architect. And I was like, I think that's a Michael Graves building. And he was like, oh. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. And then I would just drop in a little, right. you know, thing. and eventually he got comfortable. And, and then he said, uh, oh, it's five o'clock sound check time. Let's let's go show the, Joe the drums. So at this point, I'm strictly like, I, I'm like, I've died and gone to, like, <laughs> well, my, my 13-year-old self, this was going to happen. I would have had a heart attack and died. Right. Um, and then he walked me out to the kit and sat me down behind it on the stage, behind it on the stage. Wow. He loved giving tours of his kits to people. He had he would have guests backstage, but it allowed him to um, kind of show something that was fun for him, and and um, everybody always loved it sitting behind his kit. And so he was really always proud of his kits. And when I brought other drummers to meet him, he always wanted to do that. He would always meet people before the shows. As you guys know, any fan would know he would run out 
he never was there. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, Getty's still saying, thank you. Good night. And Neil's boss is pulling out. Of the <laughs> right. So, um, anyway, he was just great. And I was a dream come true. If, it, if the story ended there, I would have been thrilled beyond belief. Cause he was just so cool. I, I can remember sitting on the seat and saying like, wow, like you sit at the same height as me, but, but everything is way higher. I can't reach it. And he was like, yes, I have a very long torso. <laughs> Exactly. Like you're just like how I thought you would be. This is awesome. You know? And um oh, and then I said, Can I watch the sound check? Would you mind? And Rob was there taking pictures. I have pictures of this actually, which I'd be happy to share with you guys if you want to see them. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then so he was like, You want to watch the sound check? And I sat there and Alex walked out and they played like subdivisions and wow. a couple tunes during sound check. And I sat right behind Neil and I was just like, I just don't believe this. I mean, it was a dream come true. And then we went downstairs. Uh, and talked about the book. Now, have you guys seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan too. So um, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings. Rob kind of had prepped me for this meeting by telling me, so, you know, you know, um, there's a scene, there's a part in Lord of the Rings where I think it's Pippin is going with Gandalf into the golden hall and they're going to meet King Thaden who's under that spell and he's all nasty. So Gandalf's like, by the way, don't mention anything about Frodo or the ring. And then he goes, <laughs> by the way, right. don't mention anything about, Aragorn. And then a few more steps. Don't mention. And then a few more steps. He's like, it's better if you just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. So it was like that. Rob said, don't talk about the project at all unless he brings it up. It was a very like, you know, you have to let him get comfortable and see. So that's how we did. We just talked. And I went down to his dressing room. We talked some more. I saw that he had some bird feeder things, which I was into at the time. We talked about just non-drumming things, you know, what Bill Bruford called life beyond the symbols, you know, like life Mm -hmm. and fun stuff. Um, and then we had a great hang. And then at the end of it, he said, I'm looking forward to working with you. Wow. After no talk about the project. So that was, I just went, I couldn't even believe that that day had even happened. It was just unbelievable. And then we went through a period of talking with and meeting with him about the book. And he nearly bailed because he was not comfortable about talking about the older work. But I think he just really wanted to do something. And he, he had a longstanding relationship with Rob and Paul. I guess for some odd reason, he liked me enough to want to see it through. And um, he said, you know what? My first DVD was about recording. Tess for Echo was about recording in the studio. My second DVD was about soloing. My third DVD will make it about live performance in a concert. And as long as you ask me about any of the songs that we're playing on this tour, you can ask me about any of the parts and I'll talk about how I'm playing them. And um, that was sort of our compromise to get it to happen. And I was like, great. And they were doing actually, that was time machine tour. So they were doing moving pictures in its entirety. So I'm like, yeah. I'm good. That was, a, that was a great tour. That might be one of my favorite tours. Yeah. It's so hard to pick a favorite tour, though. It is. But that one, I, Steve and I always talk about the solo on Limelight when they played it on that tour. We saw it at Jones Beach. Uh, it was fantastic. I brought my teacher, Dom, to meet him at that show on that tour at Jones Beach. Yeah. That was such a special day. I mean, it was like Neil had emailed me. A mutual friend of ours had said, you should meet Dom. And Dom's known by all these drummers. Neil only did one drum camp appearance in his life. It was for a guy named Aldo Mata uh, up in um, Aldo. He knew him from Canada, but this was in Vermont. Neil was staying at his lake house in Quebec and he agreed to drive down and do an impromptu appearance in front of the campers. And he wound up playing and we knew at Hudson that he was coming. So we went up to film it and interview him. And uh, I had the pleasure of watching two or three guys that looked kind of like you guys, actually. (laughs) I I positioned myself to the backside so I could see the faces of people when Neil walked out. 
and two guys my age or maybe a little older, I thought they were going to just start crying. I mean, like, because Neil forbade anyone from telling, you know, people where he was going to be. That right. was, we just didn't want people to recognize him. Or, uh, but anyway, he was just so great. And um, anyway, this person, Aldo, who's a good friend of mine, Aldo emailed Neil and said, you really need to meet Don because Don wanted to meet him. Neil wrote to me and he said, Joe B, because he, he just write J-O-B-E-E, Joe B, <laughs> a friend, Aldo, our mutual friend has suggested that I meet Don Pamilaro. I did a little research and I found your name associated with his. Do you think I should meet him? Your honesty would be appreciated. Wow. He's trusting you with this information. Well, yeah, but like he's saying, you know me, you know who makes me uncomfortable. Um, but knowing Dom, Dom has an opposite personality from Neil, loves to meet everyone, very gregarious, but also has met tons of stars. Billy Joel, Steve Gadd, knows how to handle himself and is very respectful, has interviewed tons of celebrities for the sessions online. I was like, you'd love him, but how about I bring him down? So I'll be there with you guys. And um, that was what we did. And I brought Dom, I brought my teacher down to meet Neil. We had a great hang. And just to show you the level of, of privacy that Neil had, he would have one or two guests. He had a very small inner circle of friends, a few of whom I've got to know, like Chris Stanky from Sabian, who's artist relations director at Sabian, was probably his best friend, his brother, and a few very close people. And then he had some other, those people would have full run of anywhere, right? And then he had some drummer friends who would come down, and I, I was one of them. Like, But if he had another, he would, if he was having me as a guest in Jersey, he wouldn't have me as a guest in Jones Beach because it would be too many people. He just didn't like that. Mm -hmm. So he'd be like, Joe, I got the tickets for you, but I saw you in Jersey, no backstage for this one. And I'd be like, no problem, got it. So when we went to the Jones Beach show, Dom and I were his guests. I had three other close friend pro drummers of mine, pro drummer friends of mine with me, and I just couldn't ask. They were sort of hoping they might get access. It's like, this isn't a regular thing, guys. I told you, you can't, you know, it's not going to happen. So me and Dom went back there. Neil provided us with like fifth row tickets for the show. And as we're there, we found out that Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers was at the show that night. He did not get go get to go back and say hi. Wow. His guests that night. That's just the kind of guy he was. He, he just wasn't into any kind of, I'm sure, I guess Chad met him some other time. Chad's a wonderful guy. I hope he got to meet him, but it was just, Neil just wouldn't have those guys. And then, you know, you'd hang out with him and then he'd be like, have a good night, you know? And um, I don't want to forget to say this, but probably the greatest, and this is on my Facebook page. It's a picture. He did let me bring one other person to meet him. And it was my son who had just become a rabid rush fan and drummer. So on the R40 tour, my son and I were his only guests in New Jersey at the, uh, um, when you call it down the Prudential center. Wow. And, uh, mm. just one of the great, sweetest, greatest nights, like to just spend time with him and have my son. I can remember him sitting my son behind his kit and then giving him a pair of his sticks, which my son now has framed upstairs. Be like, then, you know, Neil would say goodbye after sound check. Cause you knew you wouldn't see him cause he would run out after the show. Patting my son on the head, enjoy yourself, Nicholas. And we went out and watched the sound check <laughs> on a private concert. And it was just great. But anyway, back to the book. That's something he's never going to forget your son too. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, that level of trust with Neil, I think really comes through in the book. Oh, thank but you. I was telling Steve before the information in the book, could have been very dry, you know, drumhead, but it's, it's not. It's a very interesting book. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the book and the structure of the book. Great. So what we did was we finished that DVD that I just told you guys about. We filmed all of the performances on the Time Machine Tour from the drum cameras. Neil talks about it, and you can, you can watch those performances. 
that document in and of itself is is very much worth checking out and you should check out the DVD. I had done a series of uh, transcription and interview books with some of my favorite drummers. Probably one of the, the, the closest one I got to Neil before I did with Neil was Scott Rockenfield from Queensryche. We did a drum book together and I interviewed him, went backstage, sat with him. It was kind of my, you know, similar to what I do with Neil. And, and of course he was one of my favorite drummers too. Queensryche was big for me back then. Mm-hmm. So, I said to Neil and Rob at Hudson, my dream project is to make a companion book or or also standalone book to the DVD full of all the transcriptions, but also a book that fans could enjoy a drum book, but a coffee table fan book. That's what it reads like. Awesome. Awesome. So what I envisioned was the music transcriptions, but I wanted to go back through all of Neil's touring kits and make diagrams maybe my architecture background coming through diagram all the kits. And um, there's a book you guys know called, called merely players that, that the yes. guy had. Yeah. That guy really did a good job. He, he was actually, I, I cited as a source because he was really crazy about it. Um, but I diagrammed out all the kits. I wanted to have a diagram of every kit. I wanted to have the album covers and we did what we did was we made a chapter for every tour to mm-hmm. stay with the theme of live performance, but I showed the album cover for every tour. And then we showed the kit. I wanted to have a diagram. Neil always talked about his kit in every tour program, as every Rush fan knows. So he graciously allowed me to reuse the text from the tour programs. And then I wrote my own analysis of what he played on every song. So we had some text from Neil, some text from me. And then I wanted to have every... I used to love looking through Modern Drummer to see the ads uh, of him standing in front of his love when it's Tom McKay. <laughs> So I wanted every ad that he'd ever been in, in a drum magazine. And I researched that. I contacted all the companies and they're all in there. Um, I actually even went out and I couldn't find that Zildjian ad from moving pictures that feel the, and I knew I had, so I bought, I bought a, uh, someone, you know, people sell that stuff on eBay. They oh, sure. It. Yeah. I found one for 10. I, I needed to get a good scan of it. So I just bought one on eBay, scanned it. And then Neil actually put me in touch with, the rush management office to get um, photos. So I got in touch with Finn Costello and their late photographer, Andrew, unfortunately he passed away right in the middle of it, but we still got photos. And then I, I sourced photos from Hudson music, people I had met through Hudson music. I wanted pictures of him playing on the kit that hadn't been seen. Like, like, I wonder if there's like a picture of the rear view of the, of the hold your fire tour kit. Like, because it was really weird because you could see the gong drum and, 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 and the Simmons pads were still. And so I like, I geeked out and found odd pictures. So, it, so it's a full color drum book, which is very rare coffee table fan book with enough pictures and text and album covers and ads and color that you don't have to read any music to like it. And, and the clincher was rush sold it on tour their last couple of tours. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I would walk up to the merch booth and see there's the book, uh, and of course Neil wrote the forward. Yep. And uh, we have a, a story about there's a, there's a nice story in there about how we met him and um, he, he wrote the making of of the uh, DVD and so we, we re- reprinted it there and then I wrote the making of it. The music is there if you do read music, but there's plenty there for you to enjoy um, if you don't, and even if you don't play drums but you want a little insight into his thought process on parts. I tried to make it accessible in that way as well. Yeah. I mean, it it reads very well. I mean, I don't play drums at all and I understood everything perfectly and the diagrams of the drums, it's almost like reading a map. It's just amazing. The progression from the early tours to the later tours 
as a drummer, how does one play that many drums and keep track of that many drums at one time? You know, it was funny because when I was in the tribute band, I had to, I couldn't carry around what he did. Right. So I had to get to the essence of it. But, you know, I mean, Neil, Neil's playing is like, it's, it's really like rock and roll drumming. I mean, it's like, it's kick snare hat ride is the thing. And then there's, there's a lot of Tom Toms and a lot of other things that he added in that are necessary, but the, the core of his playing, I don't know. Like I, I, I had to have a certain amount of toms to reproduce it, and he always had them, but he would, would rearrange them. But, um, I mean, once once you get into what his parts were, it all seemed to make sense. You know, the big, he made that big change. I was I was going back, and I, wa- I was watching some uh, Signals video on YouTube the other night from the Signals tour. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, he made that big change before Test for Echo where he changed. Right. Studying with Freddie Gruber, and he, I think he intrigued a lot of non-drummers about drum setups because he moved things around to try to make it more ergonomic for himself. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I mean, playing the Rush concert is, was like a full on, you know, someone asked him like, what does it feel like to play a Rush concert one time? You, you guys know his answer? No. His answer was, it's like running a marathon while solving equations. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, the, and really it's like, you know, I mean, I was only in a tribute band, but playing a three hour, set of rush music is a full on athletic event. I mean, so he, I think he was trying to find ways to make it more ergonomic at that time. And that's why he, he eliminated the two bass drums first and then he, then he moved the ride over. But when you get into drumming, it's not, it's not really that big of a deal to have more drums. I think one of the cool things about drummers though, is that like to some degree a guitar can reflect the personality with the color or the one you have, but like your drum set is like your house. Like you go to see like John Bonham had the, very strict, small um, four-piece kit with the timpani on the side. It's like a reflection of your personality. And so Neil's kits were like a total reflection of him and his concept. And he said later it was like having a, a souped-up car. Like he just took so much pride in every aspect of it, you know? And he was so excited to talk about his kits, too. Whenever you see him talking about his drum kit for that particular tour, he's, his eyes just light up. Yeah, he loved the drums. And, I, and one, the one thing that I like, I really love to tell, the thing that, was the greatest about working with him was that we've all heard the stories about how he didn't like meeting fans, but in my case, and in the case of many other, you know, lucky people who met him, what I found out was that like, he just, he just didn't like people treating him weird, like treating him like he was some kind of, you know, he's a person just like us. And Mm -hmm. treating him like he's a, a, a drumming God. Well, and, and you know what, look, the one thing that will, you and I will never, and us guys will never be able to experience is like, you know, having someone break into your tour bus and wait for you and say, I know those secret messages and the lyrics were meant for me. Like, you know, there's weird people out there, man. Like, and Mm -hmm. he had to deal, like he's writing the lyrics. So he had to deal with some stuff like that. And plus he's a very, like, you know, want to keep some privacy. Like I I know, like, it's kind of hard because all of us are like, Oh, cry me a river. You're a millionaire now. Like you could just shake my hand. Like I get that. But knowing my personality, like I play a lot of shows, like I'm in a gig where like, I'm not approached that much. I can walk from the hotel. I can go to a national park and walk around and I can walk through the city and I can do all the stuff. Like, you know, I mean, there's a trade off. Like you give up, you give up a certain amount of your, I mean, he's written about it a ton. You give up a certain amount of your freedom. And I, I've been, I've been with him. Like I've walked, I've walked down streets in New York city with him and he wanted to just be able to, to do that. You know, where he lived the last part of his life in LA was actually great for him, I think, because like there's movie stars everywhere. 
So he, he could kind of like hide in plain sight. I used to go to his um, Bubba Cave. That's where he like had his, he had some car, old cars that, he, you know, he was into old cars. So he had some there and that was where his friends would hang out with him. And I, like, you guys would never know. It was in downtown LA, like, right. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's like an auto body shop there. And like, we would walk to the sushi joint on the corner and just sit there and have lunch. And then one time he wanted a milkshake and a and cheeseburger. So we like, we walked under the 45. There's like people with the chopping carts, homeless there. Like we just walked past him. He had his hat and his glasses on. We walked in with all the construction workers and he's like, Hey man, try this burrito. It's really, they make a great burrito here. I'm like, which one's good. Like he just wanted to be like a, a guy, like do the stuff right. we like. Do. Yeah. And he, and he jealously like guarded that. And then he, he had enough means to be able to maintain that. But what I was getting at was he loved that when other his peers appreciated his work. So if you read, if you read his, he mentions me in um, one of the books where he talks about drums in death Valley. And he's like, I met their new editor, Joe Bergamini who was a frightening. He, he, the way he put it was um, a frightening level of familiarity with my work. (laughs) (laughs) But, but you know, we were talking about it like drummers and he just, he loved the fact that he inspired me to have a career and I could go and play in the pits of Broadway and play all these hit shows, which he loved to come to town and see them with his wife oh, wow. and tell them he was in the audience. Um, and he, he, lo- he loved, and he befriended and he loved when people, he loved talking about his work on the level of talking about his work. How could you not? He just yeah. didn't like the fan worship part of it. Right. Right. Well, since he'd like to talk about his drums, let's talk about his drums. Yeah. There's one thing I found interesting was his continued use of that Slingerland snare drum that he used for many, many years. What was so special about that one drum? I think as a drummer, you just get attached to a voice. Uh, and I think he got attached to that voice for a long time. I don't think it's anything deeper than that. He would try different ones, but he just, that was the sound he was hearing in his head. And you have to remember that he, all aging rock drummers, myself included, certainly from the time I came up uh, and passed, like hearing protection wasn't really that celebrated yet. So <laughs> we all lost our hearing. So he was sitting behind that drum, hearing the near field sound of that drum every day. You have to remember, he played all the rush. When did he go to in-ear monitors? Test for echo, maybe? So he was hearing the near field sound of that drum every day on tour, every concert for years and years and years and years. And he just, that's just the sound that he heard. And, um, it had a, it had a certain amount of like consistency through all those records, right? Like it sounds a little different from Hemispheres Permanent Waves to Signals. So was he still using? He was still using it on. He stopped using it on. I think it was Test for Echo. He what definitely used. He definitely used other drums on Presto. You can hear that. He, 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 I remember reading about Presto. He, he used other drums on Presto. I think he used another snare drum on. I think he stopped on Roll the Bones, maybe. But anyway. I think it was just that simple. He just, he just, that was what he was attached to. And that was the sound he had in his head. You mentioned for the Farewell to Kings tour that he started treating his drums with something called Vibrafibe. Yeah. Can you explain exactly what that is? As a non-drummer, I have no clue. It's so funny because I used to read Modern Drummer and have him talking about that. Um, There was a guy who owned a drum shop called in Fort Wayne called the percussion center. His name was Neil Graham. And actually I became friends with him long before I met Neil. He started a case company called XL specialty percussion cases, but Neil's original drum tech knew this guy. And so he would customize Neil's kits. So like, you know how, you know how Neil's like Neil's drum sets are like 
normally you have a symbol stand that has a tripod on the bottom, but Neil got, made that board. He's like, I don't want to have any of that. He, was, he had an aesthetic about everything. It's like, I don't like that forest look. All the stands have to screw into the, my floor. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, Neil was the guy who made the threaded bases. He had like a, he had like a machine shop there and he made all that stuff. So at some point he was experimenting with a proprietary thing by putting a thin layer of fiberglass on the inside of drums. And so Neil heard it and it gave the drum more attack because it put a harder surface in there. Mm-hmm. And he dug that for a few tours, but like, I don't think any other drummers really ever caught on to it. And then <laughs> he eventually did away with it. You can see it on the, um, like the moving pictures kit, the inside of the shell is like shiny because of it. Oh, wow. So um, it had, a, it definitely had a weird effect on it. And uh, he had, a, he had it done. I mean, the, the drum sound on moving pictures and signals is just still so sick that I guess it had a positive effect, but that process is nobody uses it anymore. And he didn't, he didn't like ask anyone else to do it after he stopped when Neil went out of business with that, you know? Now I wanted to ask you something. You wrote this. I'm going to quote you to you if that's okay. Sure. Notice that Neil plays beats one and two on the snare drum of that section and has the effect of smoothing out the five, four. Most drummers would double up on the snare on four and five, which has the angular feeling and matches the time. But the way Neil actually carries the momentum into the next bar and smooths out the odd number of beats in the bar. Now, that is interesting because Steve and I always talk about how Rush seamlessly goes from weird time signature to weird time signature that you uh, we rarely even notice it. I think as listeners, it's just so beautiful. It's never jarring. Is that a technique that he uses in the band as a whole uses? Mm-hmm. You're talk- that part you're talking about is in the trees, I think. Yes. So odd time signatures, R- Rush... The guy, like many other bands who try to get better at playing music, and myself included, like you start to try to expand your palette and do as many different things as you can. And you might you might stumble across something and not know that it's not in four four, or you might try to make something that's not in four four, like on purpose. But at the end of the day, when people listen to music, they don't care about that. It's just math. Yeah. So like if you're listening to Salisbury Hill, dun 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. I just love that song. It's not in four yeah. four. I don't know that I recognized that Rush was playing in odd time. I knew that there was something cool going on. I was like, what is this? Like, I can't, like, this is so cool. Like some of them I, I picked up on right away, like dead and 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 dead. It's like, oh, cool. I get that. Um, and, and so like when I was playing in drum lessons early on in my life, like I wasn't, I didn't even know I wasn't playing in four four. I was just listening to the music and Neil told me, I was like, do you ever count stuff? And he's like, if I have to count it, cause I can't follow what Alex and Getty presented me with at first, I'll count it. But no, you never want to be counting it. So I think at first when it came to like 2112 farewell to Kings and hemispheres, they were in like an art rock phase where they purposely tried to write stuff that wasn't in four. And then they transcended it and they just became guys who, who wrote, like if you if you listen to um, a symphony, you know I don't know by Stravinsky or or Aaron Copland. Like there's things the time signature is just one element of the music. It doesn't make it better or worse because it's not in four four. That's that's like a highbrow bunch of nonsense. Like that <laughs> I think Rush transcended, and they're like Spirit of Radio is like or Free Will. Like Free Will's got all kinds of stuff that's not in four four. I don't care. It's like it just is cool the way it is. So I think they got to where it's like the time signature was just a tool. And I think they, they were a band that like, they still wrote 
songs that affected me with the melodies and the lyrics that the time signatures were just like an added thing. Like there's other prog rock bands that I'm like, I just don't get emotional about them at all. It doesn't affect me at all. They're playing crazier time signatures than Rush. I appreciate it technically, but it's, I think the thing that, that Rush did was like, they just were always had a melodic thing. So, but the thing you're talking about is that they also, Neil would experiment with ways to treat stuff. And the thing you're talking about in the trees, it kind of disguises that it's in, in five, four. So that, that part is in five, four. Typically you'd play like in kid gloves. He does that. Ding, 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 mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five. But in the trees, ding, 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 ding. he puts the, he doubles the snare on the front part of the bar. So he's just experimenting with different ways to play it yeah. to make it feel better for the listener. And, uh, he just had a way of, of playing stuff that was smooth. So even if you weren't, I think that's one of the reasons why he, his drumming is so popular is because it's accessible to people. Yeah. And one of the greatest things about the DVD, speaking of accessible, is just the view of watching Neil, kind of like you did at PNC Bank Art Center that first time. You get that view right behind Neil and hearing the drums only, just phenomenal. I mean, how valuable is that for a drummer? Oh, it's great. And just to be clear, we turn the drums up loud in the mix. You still hear the other guys. Mm-hmm. The drums. And by the way, if you guys are, I, I was hoping to get like an email from someone and it hasn't happened, but like if you watch the DVD from the beginning, did you guys watch the beginning by any chance? I only watched it in parts. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you guys a total spoiler, but go back and put it in and watch the beginning. And what you're going to see is I rush fan geeked out and I Neil knew I, I, I was like, this is what we should do. Cause they played the camera eye on that tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys remember the exit stage left the movie video. Yeah. They, they had part in the beginning where they show the guy polishing the symbols. And All right. goes, I just love the concert hall. It's electric. You know, he's saying it <laughs> and you hear the, the camera eye starting out in the beginning. I reconstructed that for the, uh, Oh, cool. The, the, the whole thing of Gump setting up Neil, Neil's drums. And then we, we got to film the whole kit getting set up in time-lapse. And so we have the live version of them playing the camera eye under that. Mm-hmm. So go back and enjoy, just for my own edification, <laughs> go back and enjoy my rush geekness of re, like uh, tribute to the Exit Stage Left movie that I wore out the VHS on our Taking Center Stage VHS 20 years later. You know, I was hoping some fan would be like, dude, that was so awesome. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. And for the interview portions of the DVD, Joe, you got to interview Neil and his element, Death Valley National Park. Talk a little bit about that. How cool was that? That was a dream come true. We, by the way, on the DVD, we have, uh, we hung with Neil right before he we went on stage um, and filmed him backstage warming up. So we had that all in the can. We, we had filmed him demonstrating the part, some of the parts at his get like Getty said, Neil's the only guy who rehearses to rehearse. He would go out to California <laughs> and, and run the set at drum workshop headquarters where his drums were made. And we filmed that. That's, that's the demo part where you see him slow mowing the fills on the DVD. We filmed that. Then we filmed the show Then we, with the backstage parts. Then Neil was like, yeah, we need to film like the interviews where we talk about it or where I talk about it and you interview me. It's like, we need, we should have, Again, his aesthetic. He's like, we have the the darkness of the stage and the rehearsals. We should have a contrast to that for the interviews. Let's do it outdoors somewhere. And we we went back and forth. And 
he combined, you know, places where he wanted to ride his motorcycle with, you know, that he could get to from his home in Southern California. And we talked about doing it to save us a little um, trip and trouble. We go to a big music convention called the NAM show every year. It's in mm-hmm. LA in January. Neil would have never been <laughs> there. Uh, the rest of us go and, and, um, we did it right before the NAMM show, which helped us. So Neil's like, well, we can do it in California, but it's rainy season that year. I don't want you guys to have it blown out because of the rain. I know Death Valley National Park won't be raining, and it'll be cool at that time of year in January. Why don't we do it there? So we flew to Vegas, and um, I had we had already had the whole slate of songs. And so what we, would, what we did was Neil chose the most scenic parts of the park to be backdrops, and uh, I got to sit off camera, sometimes a little bit on camera, and interview him about all the questions I always wanted to ask him since I was a little kid. It was just amazing. And he, he actually turned me on to, I, you know, I tour a lot now too. And, and we used to trade emails. Uh, he turned me on to collecting national park passport stamps. I'm oh, huge. cool. I remember when we finished the shoot, I still was just so, so respectful of his time. And um, we finished the shoot and it went great. And the last day we stayed in stovepipe wells in, in death Valley at a motel and he just stayed where we stayed. He was fine. I said, everyone said goodbye to him the night before he had his glass in the Macallan on the motel mm-hmm. outside our door. We had it. And then um, the next morning I thought he was gone and I walked into the restaurant and I was alone and I didn't see anyone awake yet. And um, I went to have uh, breakfast. The waitress started to walk me back and he was there and he was writing in his journal. I actually like went to sit at another table and then he, he looked up and, and I said, morning, Neil. And he's like, what are you doing? Join me. And I was like, wow. Like, okay. Like I didn't know. <laughs> so we sat and I'm like, what, what you doing? And he's like, I'm going over my passport stamps from the national parks. And I was like, what's that? And he just loved talking about stuff like that. So he turned me on to it and it became a big um, thing. We would always email about and talk about. So yeah, that, that death Valley trip was just always be just one of the greatest, you know, it was just as great as you can imagine spending time with him out there and asking him all those questions. And he, you know, it's funny because he got recognized while we were out there one time and uh, he wouldn't um, give in to it. Like he just, uh, I, I was, he, he didn't, he didn't want to, you know, be interrupted to sign an autograph or something at that time. So that's just how it was. But for me, it was awesome. <laughs> you know, I want to talk to you about Neil's electronic drums when he started incorporating them into his entire kit as a drummer. Is that, something that wasn't happening at the time in the eighties, of course there were drummers who would use exclusively electronic drums, but for someone like Neil in a, in a huge rock band, I mean, huge in sound and everything, what's the reaction to someone using electric drums? Well, I think what you're getting at, maybe without knowing what you're getting at, in my opinion, is he was always looking for, and the band was always looking for other elements, other inspirations. And I think, I think that's why Rush for their entire career, like they made records, they made original music, they toured, they filled arenas. They never went away and came back. And there's so many great bands and, you know, God bless. I wish I was in one of them, you know, like, but you know, when you go to see Def Leppard, it's, and I saw them, they sounded amazing. They're great. I think Rick Allen's super inspiring. I love the music, but you know, it's a nostalgia show. They, they play Pyromania. There's, there's, there might be a new tune. I don't know. Does anyone care? I, maybe they do. Right. <laughs> You know, and, and I don't mean that sounds really, that's not cool to say, but, but, you know, like Rush, like they made a new record and then they toured and then they played the new record. Like they were, they never, there, there was no nostalgia. Like they were the yeah. same three guys 
always looking for the next thing, always staying creative. I think that's one of the things that endears them to us so much. Like they just always kept that energy of wanting to get better. And so Neil, you know, Neil was a, um, Neil had a very high level of, of what he demanded out of himself, but he also, he also had a very keen awareness of what was going on trends, both good and bad, not, not trends in the sense of like, Oh, we have to wear flannel now, but (laughs) like trends in the sense of like electronic drums are becoming really part of the sound. And you know, the guy like rush was into bands that like their fans back in the day were like, Oh, those guys are like, that's weird or lame or that's new wave. Like they like new wave. Like look at Alex's haircut and like based on depression, right. The ultra box or, you know, and so I think Neil just started to hear other players that he looked up to experimenting with electronics, like Bill Bruford, you know, uh, and then he decided maybe there's something I can do with this. And then when he got into the sampling thing, power windows, it was like, I, I can remember hearing it. And I was like, this is like staggering. Like, how is this dude like mystic rhythms? Like what, you can't like, I mean, I faked it with acoustic drums and we had the keyboard player, but like, that's all samples Yeah. for the time. It was like super cutting edge. So I, th- I think he like, I don't know, like to me, none of the stuff sounds dated. Like you go back to, you listen to the flock of seagulls and, and it's like, do, do, do like, Tom, you know? <laughs> yeah. it sounds dated. I, I don't mind stuff that sounds dated, but the rush stuff doesn't sound maybe just because I'm such a huge fan. Like, I don't know. You think like red sector a, where he's like, you know, it sounds a little dated, but it doesn't sound dated. No, I, I, no. It's perfect just how it is, you know? Yeah. And um, so I think he was just trying to like um, stay on the cutting edge. And, and I think he always did. And then, and then I, and then, you know, he talked about that. He, he incorporated it and it stayed part of it. Actually the last tour, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't do it. He was like, I don't need any electronics, but, but you know, he was ahead of the curve. Cause like to be a pro drummer nowadays, I mean, like I played 15 Broadway shows, you have to have a working knowledge of it. It's not like, it's not like an extra thing. If you're a working drummer, it's like, you need to know it. And he was like part of that. And, and, and like I said before, he had a great respect for working drummers, you know? Yeah. And that's exactly what I was trying to get at. So is his ability to continuously learn and take what he needed from whatever was happening around him. Right and incorporated into his own aesthetic. When you would hang out with him, you know, I got to be comfortable enough around him that, that we got to be, I got to be comfortable around him, meaning I got to be my normal idiotic self. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Jimmy, he was cool. He would, I used to like making him laugh. You know, he's, he liked, he's a fun loving guy, you know, but um, he knew, he just had a thirst for knowledge. He was just curious about the world. And um, I just admired that about him. And he always was looking for ways to make his drumming better. And he was just, he was like open-minded and like, he, he was like humble about it too, you know, which, which I thought was really pretty cool. He was, he was very self-aware. So like, he was almost a little embarrassed of a large number of lay people who were not familiar with any other great drummers saying Neil's the greatest drummer in the world. That like embarrassed him. He loved when people loved his work, but when someone who's, this is going to come out sounding harsh and wrong maybe, but I'm going to say it and hopefully you guys will understand what I'm saying. It's great to have the love of, of someone who's anyone who loves your work, who's touched by it. But he felt strange about if someone like he's the greatest drummer in the world. It's like, well, have you, have you listened to Buddy Rich? Have you listened to Steve Gadd? Have you listened to Vinnie Kaliuta? Have you listened to Billy Cobb? Have you listened to Bill Bruford? Now, I'm not saying it's a contest, but that made him uncomfortable. So yeah. I know he was very proud of like all his modern drummer awards. Cause it was like his peers. I mean, I don't want to speak for him. I wasn't his best buddy. I mean, I knew him pretty well, but I, I think that like people 
that would make you feel weird. You know, you're like, yeah. you know, I mean, and, and I think, but anyway, he was, he just had a thirst for knowledge and he always wanted to make himself better, which was evidenced by the fact that he took lessons, you know, Gruber, <sighs> yeah. and then he, and then he took lessons again. And, and you know what, if you're a drummer, you realize that like we, he was, he was one of us. Like I've been doing this since I was 13. It's my life's work. I practice a lot. And I think I suck. Like, that's just how it is, you know? Um, and he was there. He was like that. Like, and, and he liked that he could be comfortable with his drummer friends that were like kindred spirits like that. You know, like, at least, at least that's what I thought when I hung out with him. That's how he made me feel. This is the quandary that Neil painted himself into. He made us all feel like we knew him because he projected himself into the music so strongly that we all knew him sort of. Yeah. We all sort of know him. And speaking of that, when Neil passed away, Jerry and I had a conversation and it felt like we lost a family member and mm -hmm. we didn't know him. Like you said, it felt like we knew him. I can only imagine how you feel the fact that you are friends with him. I'm, I just finished reading the book Des Desert Solitaire, which was one of his favorite books. And I, I never read, him, read it when he was uh, alive. And I, <clears throat> you know, there's like at least once a night when I was reading it, I was like, oh man, I really wish I could email Neil about this. This would be so cool. And by the way, he wouldn't answer you back unless he had something productive to say. Like it would be in a letter. Like you wouldn't just have short emails about stuff, you know? So, but I, but yeah, I, I I'm at the, I, I still, you know, I still feel him really strongly. I, I miss him. You know, like I, you know, I was, I was one of his drum buddies. I wasn't a family member of his. Uh, he was very important to me. Um, so I don't want to be Mr. Melodramatic, but I, I do miss him a lot. And um, I, I did, you know, I did know that he was sick. It was just a testament to his desire for privacy and the respect for the people who knew him well, that there were a few of us in the music industry that knew about it outside of his circle. Um, I hung out with him. He did very well with what they initially handed him with his the cancer that he had. And so I hung out with him a whole bunch of times after he, he was diagnosed. And at first when he hung out, when he told Rob Wallace, who's way older friends with him than me, I think he wasn't sure if I should know because he just knows how many drummers I know. And he knows how many fans I know. And at the end of the day, he, you know, thought it was okay that I would know. And um, so I had to be part of keeping it a secret and, um, and we hung out. So it wasn't unexpected, which of course everybody was shocked because they, they didn't even know he was sick. Like he just wasn't interested in like, just, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I like, he's just a strong guy. I couldn't do that. I'd be like, I'm sick. I'm sick. Help me. You know, like he just was so strong and you know, I don't know, maybe I didn't see him in his moments of weakness, but so I think, and at the end he didn't, he didn't even want to talk to me because he just didn't want his friends to see him diminished at the end, you know, and yeah. I respected that, but, um, but yeah, of course I was, I was crushed and I still am, you know, I can't, I, I, I wrote everything that I could say about it. I wrote a eulogy to him. Hudsonmusic.com has a tribute page to him where we collected um, thoughts about his passing from people who knew him, his peers, everybody from Stuart Copeland and Steve Smith and Rob Morgenstein. And I got to write a eulogy. So, you guys maybe just read it there. I couldn't, I couldn't read it to you now because I would start to cry. So I won't. <laughs> Speaking of HudsonMusic.com, is, is that where we can get this book and DVD, Joe? Yes. Thank you. So uh, yes, it's available at HudsonMusic.com. You can also check it out at my site, JoeBrigamini.com. Either one, the book and the DVD. And uh, it is available. You know, all the, all the Hudson stuff is widely available. It's on Amazon as well. So yeah, if you're, if you're interested, if you're a 
I think if you're a fan, it would make a nice addition next to your moving pictures tour book and your <laughs> R40 tour book and, and all that stuff. So yeah, it really is a great book. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys, I, I, uh, I kind of looked at it like I have the privilege of, you know, being with him. I want to represent all the fans. I want to ask what they wanted to ask. I want to get as, you know, as much respect and, uh, and fun and enjoyment out of my friendship with an access and trust that he had to let everybody see a little glimpse inside and, and um, how cool it would be to sit next to him for, for a couple of days. Cause it really was cool. It really was cool. I wish all you guys would have had the chance. You would have, you would have loved it. Yeah. And it really shines through in the book, Joe. It really is terrific. The name of the book is taking center stage, a lifetime of live performance. Joe Bergamini. Thank you so much for joining us on the rush fan cast. It was a true pleasure. Thank you guys. My pleasure. Thanks. So Jared, I don't even know what to say about that conversation we just had with Joe. How fabulous was that? It was. I mean, I don't think I spoke very much because I was just sitting here with my, just like I'm sitting here right now. <laughs> with your jaw dropped, right? Yeah, just, just listening to everything he said. I, I didn't want to interrupt him at all. Yeah, I mean, to have that kind of relationship with Neil must have been yeah. an amazing experience for him, especially since he was like us, just a huge Rush fan growing up. Yeah. Really amazing. I had a lot of questions about some things that he wrote in the book, but I, I didn't even get to them though, which is, those are the kind of interviews I like when I have a bunch of questions and I don't ask any of them because the conversation just kind of flows naturally. Those are the best. Yeah. Yeah. And we mentioned Joe's relationship to Rush, that he was in the Rush tribute band and he wrote the book with Neil, but he's an accomplished drummer in his own right. I know. I mean, Tours internationally with the doo-wop project. He works on Broadway all the time. He's been in so many different shows and he has his own band forefront. So uh, check out JoeBergamini.com to see everything Joe's doing and check out his drumming. He really is amazing. I agree. Yeah. And for the book, HudsonMusic.com, even if you're not a drummer, if you're a Rush fan, this is a book you need to have. It really is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to talk to him about that we didn't get to was Neil's trademark like uh, symbol, the thing he does in the symbol. You can hear it in a lot of songs, especially like YYZ. You can hear that little pattern he does on mm -hmm. the symbol a lot. It was a little fascinating couple of sentences about that. Well, maybe we can have Joe back one day to give us a little drum clinic. Oh, that'd be great. That would be cool. Maybe we could just yeah. pick a couple of songs and he could just go through them piece by piece for us. Here I am volunteering Joe to come back. And we, we haven't even asked we him We should have asked him that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be willing to come back. Oh, that'd be awesome. And I wanted to shout out to Lex, who does the bass intro and outro for our podcast. He's the one who hooked us up with Joe. So Lex, thanks yeah. so much for that. Yeah, thanks, Lex. Not only is he doing the bass work on the podcast, he's booking guests for us too. I know. He's, he's multifaceted. All for free. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> One day he's going to come with a bill. One day, and then we'll hide. Yeah. yeah. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. On Instagram, we are TheRushCast. And on email, we are TheRushCast at gmail.com. And Jared, why don't you wrap us up with a tremendous quote? So instead of doing a lyric, I wanted to quote something from Neil's forward to the book. Oh, that's cool. Great. Let's yeah. hear it. And he just talks about um, playing and practicing. He says, every day... I play along with a proposed set list of old and new songs, building stamina and calluses and feeling my strength, accuracy, and confidence grow 
Recently, a notion occurred to me that very much ties together the musical odyssey that is documented by the songs and stories in the DVD and book. The way I play now is the way I always wanted to play. Wow, that's great. Which I, I when I read that, I was like, that's amazing. Really is. Because this was, this was 2012, right? Right, right. And the book came out? 2013, I think. 2013. So Neil was only just... You know, feeling like he was coming into his own then. That's incredible. He was always striving to be better, which was yeah. what made him so great. Again, the book and DVD, Taking Center Stage, A Lifetime of Live Performance. Jared, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you for joining me. <laughs> we'll talk to everyone soon. All right, bye.